this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 154, recording on Saturday, April 23rd. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm, ha- I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. It's a, I, I guess, 400-year anniversary of Shakespeare death. That's a pretty big bookish day. Is that is that a thing? Like, people are making a thing out of it, but is it actually a thing is a different I question. I think people are making a thing of it. Yeah. Like, it seems the you know the bigger the author the more anniversaries people find to celebrate. So there's like Shakespeare birthday, Shakespeare death day. Um, I think they're actually the same thing. Yes, is his birthday well, today as well? I mean, we don't it's know, all so... part of the is Shakespeare a, th- a right. real person or who is it or whatever. Um, it's like it is weird that supposedly died and was born on April twenty yeah, third. I Very saw that um, at one of the parks in London. They're doing on like they're doing screenings of thirty seven of his plays, or mm. I don't know how many there were. So maybe that's all thirty. <laughs> I think there are 37 attributed, but I could be wrong about that. I knew that you would probably know Mm. that. So I'm glad that we could achieve that together. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, One of the stranger Shakespeare stories that I saw in the last week that I don't think is necessarily timed for the 400th whatever um, is that Lifetime, you know, the TV station famous for cheesy Christmas Uh movies, uh, is doing a new project and it's... An autobiographical, well, sorry, that's the wrong thing. This is an anthology drama series that puts a horror twist on Shakespeare. So kind of like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies kind of situation? I guess. It's very strange. Uh, The first title is called A Midsummer's Nightmare. And <laughs> and it's described as an adaptation of Shakespeare plays that are turned into contemporary horror mysteries. Each season would take on a different play. And so obviously the first one is A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, but they don't have uh, details about what the future seasons would be, uh, presumably because the first one has not, you know, dropped yet or been renewed. But I'm uh, interested, mm-hmm. <laughs> cautiously, I think. I certainly will watch nine minutes and see what I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 400 um, years ago uh, today, supposedly Shakespeare died. Um, well, he did die, whether or not it was today or some other day. And then Cervantes also, another oddness of literary history. Oh, on the same day? Cervantes and Shakespeare supposedly died on the same day, April 23rd, 1616. Uh, That's so there very we are. Strange. Also, the, it is now also the it's also the carcass formerly known as World Book Night is tonight. Did they pick that because of Shakespeare's birthday? You know, I'm just now th- putting that together. I think that they did. Yeah. Um, and it, World Book Night did originate in the UK, and they're mm. still doing it over there. Yes, they're still right. rolling um, the American so- carcass. Yes, the American carcass. That that would be a show title if it weren't so sad. Yeah, so uh, disgusting. 
But we are doing our um, Book Riot's BYOB, which is Bring Your Own Books Book Drive in several cities tonight. So by the time you're listening to this show, it'll be too late. Uh, But we are observing in our own way uh, to hang out with readers and collect books and get them out to charities. Um, Man, I wish that I wish that we could resurrect the carcass of World Book Night. I guess if you're going to pick a day that you want to have a literary anniversary of something to coincide with a new event. Shakespeare's birthday is not the worst choice. I don't know what else you would pick. Yeah, I was trying to think about what alternates might be for sort of globally significant. um, I mean, things much older than that. I mean, even Shakespeare's birthday is, I think there's a little, you know, that like squiggly equal sign that's like, it means approximate. I sort of have that in front of April 23rd, 1564 (laughs) for Shakespeare's birthday. Um, But so going back before that, like... the Iliad, you're lucky if you get within a century. Sure. Um, forget about the Bible, you know. Maybe <laughs> it's, you go just for a whole like mess. the day they dug up the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, and before Shakespeare, I guess it'd be something with Chaucer or something like that. Oh. Um, Chaucer's birthday. Uh, anyway, that's that's so happy birthday uh, or happy death day. That's death. Day. Well, and birthday. It's weird. It's very also mixed. Life up. day. Life day. So we'll have to wait, I guess, another hundred years to get around Shakespeare. 500 years of Shakespeare's mm-hmm. birth. Now, that will be uh, a to-do when yes. we're all communicating Presumably. via hologram VR through <laughs> implanted eyeballs. <laughs> You're planning to be around for that one. You never know. You know that the futurist Raymond Kurzweil? Have you heard of this mm-hmm. guy? Yeah, he yeah. thinks he's, you know, he's, he wants to live long enough because he thinks the singularity is coming where he can upload himself to the cloud or whatever. Takes like 75 like pills a day, like various like <gasps> antioxidants and Amazing. everything like that. It's like, you know, I think immortality is one of those things that seems like a good idea until you like have to deal with it, you know? Like, like has dude just not read enough dystopian yeah, sci-fi? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Maybe, maybe not. Um, it doesn't. It just doesn't seem wise yeah, it, to it, want. It, I'm to sure live. it has its virtues. I mean, just think of your stock portfolio. But everything yeah. else seems like a disaster. I'm thinking about the people in the trees. Oh um, yeah, <laughs> and how living forever turns out to just really not work super great for right. that tribe in in the book. Um, that put me off the notion. Like I never really wanted to live forever, but that totally that put me off officially. Good job, Hanya Yanagihara. Yeah, uh, Hanya Yanagihara's first novel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we yeah. talked about when it came out. That was one of my favorite books of whatever year that was. People, in the trees. yeah, I, really I missed it that year and just read it. I think at the end of you know, at either at the end of last year mm. or very early this year, and w- I could not put it down. Mm-hmm. Um, what a good uh, let's one. do our very. first sponsor. So the the first sponsor this week is Before the Fall. It's a book by Noah Hawley. We actually talked about when this book was announced as existing as a book deal because Noah Hawley is the creator of Fargo, the TV show. That's why this sounds so familiar to me. That's why it sounds familiar. It's it's kind of a generic title, Before the Fall, um, to be honest. So it's, it's hard to remember that the title is associated with him. But this is this is the book. It's coming. It's out now. Oh, actually, let me, I've got the arc in front of me. Is it out now? No, it comes out in May. Um, so t- take a look out for it. They also sponsored our Read Harder book groups, and there are a bunch of galleys. I've got a galley in my hand right now. May 31st. It won't be out till May 31st. Um, and here's the deal. So on a summer night, 11 people leave Martha's Vineyard on a private jet headed for New York. 16 minutes later, plane crashes. And the book is about the, it sort of interweaves chapters before and after the crash and who has and who hasn't survived and what happened. Um, between two of the survivors, they sort of 
starting a relationship. So it's it's a mystery and a thriller with some more experimental sort of structure built into it. It's uh, I read the first ten pages. I'm going to read this. I think uh, it's 380 pages or so. Very very. It's 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 got that sort of mystery thriller vibe, but it feels a little more weighty to me. I don't know if it's mm. just because I haven't read a physical mystery in a while. So it's like, oh, this is real. <laughs> oh, you mean actually weighty? Yeah, actually weighty. <laughs> um, really interesting stuff. So that's uh, Before the Fall by Noah Hawley. Thanks very much for sponsoring the show. I've, I've got a sense that this could be a, a TV show too, just from the it's, way it's structured. It's kind of got a Lost vibe, but more Yeah, I was going to say it sounds like reality. Lost without the smoke monster. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think that's... I wouldn't be surprised if there's news of an adaptation coming up before so long, too long. So that's if you like, if you like mysteries, if you like psychological thrillers um, with a twist. I think before the fall is for you. That's before the fall. Noah Holly, come H A W L E Y is the last name coming out in May. Keep an eye out for it. That one um, had me uh, chapters weaving between. Yeah, see, that's the, one of your things. Before it is what I man the weaving chapters, and then if you're going to do before and after mm-hmm. a significant event and let me piece it together, that's mm-hmm. like. Bells will be ringing. Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I also was, was going through the books, um, you know, the notable galleys that are going to be available at BEA next month, mm-hmm. and Holly's going to be there, and they're giving away four hundred galleys, which is usually oh, a pretty good yeah. sign. And they did pre; they're doing pre-pub sponsorship here. These are all usually signs that there's going to be a big push. So you heard it here first, folks. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, are there? You know, this is off the this is off the schedule or, or off the docket. <laughs> oh, uh, eight minutes in, and eight we're minutes, already, we're already off. off. But uh, did you were you in? We were talk, I dropped this in Slack the other day. It might have been while you were off on Friday that HMH is not going to BEA. I did see that. Yeah, HMH being the uh, Houghton uh, Mifflin Harcourt, one of the big five publishers. I think the smallest of the big five in terms mm-hmm. of total revenue, but uh, a big five name, one of the last. Nevertheless, is not attending BEA this year. This is a little bit of insider baseball, but some of you might be interested in this. You know what? If you listen to this show, this is probably the kind of insider baseball you're you're looking for at least. Um, there, BEA, it's the big North American book trade show, the biggest one in North America every year. I think one of the few big ones in the world, it's like London, Frankfurt, and BEA, I think, are the three big ones. Um, and it's in Chicago this year after being in New York for the last 12 years, I believe. Before that, it moved around. Um, it's going to Chicago for a number of reasons. I think the one that is the most obvious is it's it's cheaper to have a convention in New, uh, Chicago than in New York. Um, the other reasons they offer, though I'm not sure it's true is that some people go to Chicago that can't go to New York. But since most of publishing is in New York, it's actually much more expensive in aggregate for the publishing industry mm-hmm. to get to Chicago. Um, and so some I know, I know, since I've talked to some people at the other big five publishing houses and some of the other larger publishers that aren't the big five, they're not sending their full retinue that they usually go, um, more selective. And HMH is not going at all, which is, you know, notable, actually. It, it is really notable for a huge publisher, for one of the huger ones, mm-hmm. at least, to not attend at all to have a presence there um, because the business that gets accomplished at BEA um, is presumed to be so important in yes. the industry that publishers have a chance to be face to face with the booksellers that and the librarians and you know other industry people, the members of the press that they're hoping mm-hmm. will either stock their books or start the early buzz for them. Um, to have no presence at all is a really interesting choice, and I have to guess that it has something to do with more than just the finances of it. That mm. there's also that calculus of is it important enough for the money and that the money might not be there or they might be allocating their budget differently. But someone I I think 
And my reading of this has made the decision that it's not important enough to spend however much mm-hmm. it would cost them to have a presence there. And yeah, there are so many people that like I see at BEA every year that we've been doing the email, you know, mm-hmm. spring emailing of like, let's get together. Oh, are you going to be at BEA? And very many of them aren't going to be. So I'm really interested in what the feeling is going to be like in McCormick Place as opposed to mm-hmm. Javits. Like, I assume that it will be um, existentially more pleasing yes. uh, than being in the Javits Center. But uh, what how big it will feel or how not big it will feel and who else will be absent from it. Um, interesting to move the show around. I think it did used to move around. That's my understanding year. too. Yeah. yeah. And then they parked it at Javits for an extended period of time. And this is the like, let's see what happens if we move it around. There's been no, <laughs> there's been no announcement of where it will be next year. I don't think, um, which is also unusual. Usually the location is available for several years. I think this is years. the sixth BEA I've gone to. Uh, yeah, this will be my, I think this is my sixth or seventh. I think, I think June 2010 was the first year that I went. Um, and then the next year, the site, we Clint and I had just started the idea for mm-hmm. the site. Um, I don't think it was even public knowledge to anyone really at that point besides the two of us. <laughs> um, and then, so every year I've gone to BEA has been in New York. So I'm interested to see how it is differently too. The, the, this, this was an article in Publishers Weekly that I'm getting this information from. It, I mean... They're not hiding it, or at least Publishers yeah. Weekly was not told by BEA not to say it because they, they have a very close relationship. Um, Publishers Weekly does a daily broadsheet from the show floor. Um, they were trumpeting that their their registrations of book sellers, book buyers, excuse me, between libraries and bookstores and other locations is up hmm. from New York. Um, notably, statistics about exhibitors and industry and editorial people were um, redacted or not redacted, but not included. So I can imagine that there are some, you know, booksellers and book buyers from the Midwest and the West Coast, even that for whom New York was too, too far afield to go, but in Chicago, a little more affordable to travel to if you have to travel anyway, mm-hmm. a little bit easier to get to that from, you know, LA or Seattle or something like that, or let, let alone Chicago itself or Detroit or wherever. So there's some people that might be, you know, been wanting to go but haven't gone for a variety of reasons and this made it just easy and easier enough for maybe people on the buy side it's harder on the whole for people on the sell side of ba but maybe it will be easier on the whole for people on the buy side to get there Int- uh, very interesting to see um so anyway, all right, that's that got us off on some. Uh, <laughs> that's on right some now. I'm thinking baseball. about like, ooh, in a couple of weeks we'll get to do our post BEA show. Post-BEA with all show. Of our... I, I'm putting together a list of the galleys. Do you want to hear some of the galleys that are going to yes. be there? I mean, what, let, you know, it's a Saturday show, so it's a little. We can do whatever we want. We're kicking it. There are yeah. no rules here. Well, one big announcement, and Saunders himself is going to be here. But George Saunders was announced last week that George Saunders has a new novel. His first full length novel is coming out in January. Um, and I cannot, for the life of me, find the name of it right now. Um, something Bardo? Yeah, something so- Bardo. I'm not sure. Uh, but he's going to be there and signing. Um, that's very, very interesting, it seems to me. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jonathan Saffron Fower's new book, Here I Am, is coming out in September. Uh, he's going to be there, and they're going to be giving away a bunch of those. Hmm. It's called Lincoln in the Bardo. Lincoln in the Bardo. Yeah, that's that's it. One I'm interested in is uh, Marcy Dermansky's new book, The Red yes. Car. Oh, man, I loved Bad Marie Bad so Marie, much. Bad um, Marie, which I think came out a few – it came out before, I think, 
Book it was Riot pre-Book was Riot. Thing. It um, was like 2009, 2010. That's when I did all the reading for the term of books. And it was one of, mm. it was, Bad Marie was picked for that. And I really got a kick out of the, uh, you know, I really got a kicked out of that. That I'm very interested in. Let me see. What else do I have here? Um, oh, Amir, Amir McBridge's new book. McBride? McBride. I'm sorry. I, yes, I typed it in wrong on my spreadsheet. Ah. And I'm reading out of my spreadsheet. The Lesser Bohemians. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is did coming a girl out. is a half-formed king, Yes, right? which won the Giller Prize or maybe the book. It won a big award. I can't remember which. Um, but this is her new novel that's coming out. Um, let's see. I think that's all I've got. I mean, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, um, which is coming out in the fall, is going to be there. It's going to be a huge book. Um, let's see. Anything else that I want to mention? Yeah, those are the big ones I see on my list. Oh, um, Emma Donahue. Oh, really? Girl Room has a new Mm -hmm. novel coming out called The Wonder. Uh, and it's coming out in September. And I think this, speaking of things that ring your bells, I think this is about people getting out of a cult. Oh. I think. I'm ready. <laughs> I think that's what that's about. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, that's that's what I've got so far. I'm just getting through. I've, I've got a million of these to do. Do you um, want an unsolicited Jeff Bell ringing book yes, recommendation? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Of course. I've- I meant to send you a million texts about it last weekend. I read um, Modern Lovers by Emma Straub, ah, yes. which comes out, I think, Is that late, getting it's the like, band back together? Yes. Oh, it's yes. like It's like May 30th, June 1st. Yeah, it's May 30th, date. yeah. People who were in a band, like I, they were literally in a band together <laughs> in college, and then they stay friends and move to New York and live like on the same street in Ditmas Park. No way. Way. So it's... <sighs> <laughs> it what? moves it moves between the present when they're all like in their mid 40s early 50s and they have teenage kids That's and crazy. we get flashbacks of them in a band together in college they're like, literally it, in a band together it is literally getting the band back together it's so good it's just so good and the ditmas park stuff i'm sure is just gonna be cr- like you love a new york novel boy oh boy <laughs> that is tough if only marilyn robinson read though emma is great herself <laughs> if uh, marilyn robinson writes a book set in like lawrence kansas ever oh, we're Lord. both just gonna die About like English we will have majors. to read it from the afterlife <laughs> it's gonna be super bad oh a couple other just as i'm scanning my list um china mievel has a new book coming out in august um, china mievel always has the, a new, the book new novel out. calls the last day of paris um, Jacqueline Woodson's uh, new novel, Another Brooklyn, <clears throat> um, coming out on August 9th as well. It's in her first novel for adults in 20 years. Wow. Um, another one is Commonwealth by Ann Patchett. That's coming out in September. Oh, we've got a couple contributors who have read that already, and I'm hearing good things. Oh, are you? Oh, that's mm-hmm. awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, yeah. Oh, uh, Caroline, I mean, do you know how to say her last name? L-E-A-V-I- Levitt? Do you notice? Oh it? yeah, Levitt. Levitt. Mm-hmm. She has a new book from Algonquin coming out in October called "Cruel Beautiful World," which I'm looking for, uh, looking forward to as well. And I'm sure there'll be others that I haven't even oh, yeah. dug into yet. Um, I always walk into BEA with a list like this of the things that I mm-hmm. think I really want to bring home, and then I start talking to publishing people who are like, "Oh wait, no, this thing," and then I end up coming home <laughs> with stuff that I had no idea about, which is kind of the best. I think one of the best yes, parts of the yeah, experience. Yeah. Well, and these are only cold so far from. Um, looking at publishers' catalogs, but also looking at the list that Publishers Weekly did of notable yeah. galleys. And that that's not that's not uh, exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. But um, uh, I'd like to get a copy. Let's If I had, if I only get to get three of those, I'd like to get my hands on the Underground Railroad. I know you can get it digitally, but let's, you know, I'm an old man. I don't like stuff like that. <laughs> I'd like that. I'd like the Woodson 
for sure. Mm-hmm. I really want to take a look at that. And you know what? I'm curious to see what Foer has up his sleeve. I've been curious about that one too. Um, the last few ones have been weird since uh, yeah. Incredibly Loud and Extremely Close or Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. I can never figure, I can never, I always transpose those. Um, it's been the one, the Tree of Codes, which is a cutout. And then there oh, was, right. there was the one about, uh, is it, was it called Eating Animals? Or I can't, or what, what the one that was about, oh, uh, it right. wasn't Eating yeah. Animals with somebody else, but it was about being, it was about, it was about being a vegetarian. Uh, right. What so it's been one? a while since we've got a, you know, a full on novel. Yeah. Uh, oh, and the I'm Saunders. All, I mean, the Saunders. Yeah, Saunders, that's going to yeah. be interesting. I'm always interested in what China Mieville mm-hmm. is doing. I can't keep up with him because there really is like always a new China Mieville something. Yes. And his brain is just so weird and great. Yes. Um, interested in that one. And I haven't really built the rest yeah, of no, my... Yeah, I'm, no, I'm not a way yeah. through, so we'll see. Um, all right, should we get to the actual agenda? I guess we could. We'll <laughs> Maybe. See. That was a nice little diversion. I like this fast and loose <laughs> Saturday afternoon recording thing. Uh, well, we're bearing the big news of the week then, I guess, which is that the Pulitzer Prizes were announced this week. Yeah. They were were even late on this. Um, and uh, for for those of you listening to this show, which you're probably more interested in the books than all the journalism awards, the big winner, the big winner was The Sympathizer um, by Viet Thanh Nguyen um, from Grove Press, uh, which is a bit of a dark horse, I want to say. Yeah, it got great reviews. It got great but... reviews. It's not one we hadn't heard of. Uh, I've certainly heard of it. And, I, and I've been had it on my list of, you know, not my, my TBR zero, which is actually sort of a TBR of list of things <laughs> I'd like to look at, um, is definitely on there. And in fact, I bought the ebook when it was like five bucks a while ago, just because I did. So I'm very excited about that. He also wrote a very nice piece that um, I haven't had a chance to, to put in the show notes about why, how this is a win for diversity in books and, you know, this sort of thing. Maybe we'll talk mm-hmm. about that next week. Um, the other finalists were Get in Trouble by Kelly Link and Mods Line by Margaret Verbal, which I hadn't heard zero things about. Have you heard about Mods no, Line by Margaret I, Verbal? I had not, I had not heard of it. Um, I don't know what it's about. Hope yeah. Mifflin Harcourt sends me lots of mail. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't and get didn't, it as far as you know? I didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't get it. I I don't know. It's always so fascinating to wonder like, okay, how many books did they start with before they got down to these finalists and how like this is these three are such an interesting Yeah list and very eclectic get in trouble uh, i just loved it's this it's speaking since we were talking about george saunders it's like mm-hmm. short stories that are weird and kind of magical and the world is a little bit off and it's just wonderful and very imaginative and i think that kelly link is just supremely underrated everyone should read her and if you like karen russell and george saunders you should really read her mm-hmm. um so i was thrilled to see that. I don't know what Mods Line is about, but it's interesting to imagine the same panel of people getting stoked about Get in Trouble that got stoked about The Sympathizer, um, unless they're really, you know, doing some different things with the judging than we've seen in the past. Because at least to me, the, the like the finalist lists usually seem to be kind of homogenous. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, you can see how they got to these three together. Mods um, Line is about is set on a 19, an, an Indian allotment in Oklahoma in the 1920s, oh. which is very interesting. Interesting to me. I, I'm not sure if I've talked yeah. about this on this show, but um, I'm uh, I like uh, kind of a side hobby of mine is reading Na- Native American novels. I've been mm-hmm. doing that for a while, and I'm surprised I hadn't heard about this because usually these things pop on my radar. I'm definitely, definitely going to be reading that. The Sympathizer is set um, after Viet- the Vietnam War in April 1975, and it's about a conflicted communist sympathizer dealing with the fallout 
of what's going you know, as Vietnam becomes fully communist. It's a debut novel. Nguyen himself is a professor and an academic, uh, and, and he runs diacritics.org is the editor of that, looks, which I took a look at this week, which is a pretty highbrow literary journal. Mm-hmm. Seems like a really interesting guy. Um, so this one is rocketed to the top yeah, of and I think of it just came list. out in paperback, so yeah. that's also really excellent timing for yeah, him and for book clubs. And So this is, to me, and again, I didn't go back and look at the recent Pulitzer finalists um, and winner. This, to me, as far as I remember, is the most interesting list of finalists the Pulitzer has done in a while. The kind of list yes. I'd expect out of pen, like because yeah, they tend yeah. to be a little more different. Right. Um, I was expecting Fates and Furies on here, um, yep. or A Little Life, or maybe both of them. Yeah. Um, just from what got talked I mean, about last year. That would year. be the smart money, right? That uh, yeah. to pick that. Um, yeah. Shoot, I was going to say the Kindle edition of Sympathizer has jumped back up to 907. It was also in a deal on Audible for a while, but it doesn't look like it is right now. So anyway, um, yeah, and, and Maud's, Maud's line, very, very interesting. Um, the one, I guess I, I didn't really have a favorite going in. I thought if anyone was going to have a favorite for the nonfiction, it would be Between the World and Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a finalist but did not win. Uh, I've now lost my place for history. I got you. Oh, biography of... No, it was a finalist, were, but what was it in? It was a finalist for general nonfiction. Okay. And Black and, Flags, The Rise of ISIS yeah. by Joby or Joby Warwick won that. Um, biography or autobiography was Barbarian Days by William Finnegan, which I read, I, I read, I did on audio. It's just excellent. I was going to ask it because it's a surfing life. I like I surfing. That sounds... I you like do? Surf, I, I don't like surfing. I like reading about surfing. That's that. That is a like mini Jeff wheelhouse. I would never. Yeah, I've got. I've, I'm great. letting you into the inner the inner courtyard of the wheelhouses, the um, <laughs> surfing and uh, Native American novels. Um, if you want to That's get a- my pick for the best surfing novel I've ever read, it's called Breathe by Tim Winton, who's an Australian novelist. It's a coming of age story set on the western coast of Australia, as uh, two two young men are taught to surf by a wise and old Jedi surfer. Um, it's great. It's short. A great summer read. Anyway, that's unsolicited pick from me for a surfing novel. Uh, let's see. History, Custer's Trials, the, A Life on the Frontier of New America by DJ Styles, one for history, who's won two Pulitzers. That's a second Pulitzer. That's a hell Man. of a job. And maybe the shoe-in of all shoe-ins, uh, <laughs> Lin-Manuel Miranda won the Pulitzer for drama for, um, let's see, what's that musical called? What's it called? Uh, uh, Monroe. Monroe. Jefferson. Monroe, yeah. Um, <laughs> one for that. Uh, let's see, any other me. things that uh, are worth, or, you know, that worth mentioning here? Poetry, uh, well, Ozone yeah. Journal by Peter Balakian. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Yeah, general nonfiction, Between the World and Me. And then If the Oceans Were Ink, which is interesting. I read just a little bit about this after I saw it. Um, An Unlikely Friendship and the Journey in the Heart of the Quran, which I thought seemed really cool. Yeah, that does seem interesting. So there's your, there's your list. Um, a particular, it seems to me a particularly interesting list uh, all the way around. Um, nothing I, I would have picked myself, but I haven't read them all. Uh, I guess, I don't know, if you ask me to pick, Biography, autobiography, it's weird. Um, I guess Between the World and Me is general yeah. nonfiction. I almost feel like that could go in autobiography a little bit, yeah, too. Yeah, I think you could fairly put it either place. Yeah. Um, 
It it is interesting to have put it there. And now I feel like I have to read the ISIS book to see what's what could anyone think is better than Between the World and Me um, for nonfiction. My understanding of reading about that is the reporting is just out of this world. Like uh-huh. you're 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 in the Iraq you're in Iraq and you're dealing with you know people mm-hmm. who will cut literally cut your head off. Um, so I think that's part of it. Is my understanding. Uh, what's going on there? Because that's some, you know, some of it is a reportage part of it as yeah. well. Um, any other notes about this that no. you uh, wanted to you get know, to? I don't think so. I'm really pleased to see the list be so interesting mm-hmm. and so different from like the National Book Awards list that we saw um, last year. And from, you know, it'll be interesting to see as the year goes on who else gets nominated for things. But um, yeah. I'll, I'm always pleased when a, the winner is something that was spoken well of, but not something that everybody has already read. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like a nice thing, a nice service to the literary community to go beyond just like, this is the great book that everyone's already talked about. Yeah, I'm listening, Um, I'm looking at the last few winners. And just to piggyback off that point, All the Light We Cannot See won last year, which was not a surprise. The Goldfinch won the year before, mm -hmm. not a surprise. The Orphan Master's Son in 2013 was a surprise. That I remember, yeah, that was a Um, big surprise. No bigger surprise than 2012 when no When there was was not (laughs) Um, 2011, (laughs) A Visit from the Goon Squad was not a surprise. No. Tinkers by Paul Harding in 2010 was a surprise. Olive Kittredge in 29, yeah, I think was a surprise. Brief Wonder of Lives of Oscar Wilde in 28, not a surprise. Not a surprise 2007, Cormac McCarthy, The Road, not a surprise. March by Geraldine Brooks, 26, not a surprise. Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And so, so the yeah. middle, and then between before that, middle, the Known World, Middlesex, Empire Falls, Amazing mm. Ventures in Capital Care, Interpreter of Maladies, The Hours, American Pastoral. Like, yep. not a lot of surprises not a there. A lot of surprises there. Hey, and some of it is hindsight bias. But, of uh, Marilyn Robinson having of one of Marilyn thing. Robinson. <laughs> we should rename the podcast Speaking of Marilyn Robinson. Or maybe a spinoff podcast where it's just all Rob- Marilyn Robinson just news. once a show. week. You know, we I think we just do a, we read one line of Gilead each week <laughs> and then meditate on it for an hour. Um, <laughs> there are four listeners to that show, but they're all very sweet, sensitive <laughs> souls. <laughs> this week, the Time uh, Magazine list of the 100 most influential people came out and Marilyn Robinson was listed as one of them on the icons list. Um, there were other literary folks included. Uh, Tanahasi Coates was one along with who was the other one? Oh, Elena Ferrante. Yeah. Um, she who we don't actually know who she mm-hmm. is. Uh, so cool to see three literary people on this 100 most influential people list. I was uh, excited this and this is like a tiny detail but stoked that Marilyn Robinson was listed under the icons mm-hmm. section and not the artists section. Um, not that the artists aren't important, but kind of acknowledging her position in the in the culture as more than someone who is producing art, because um, she does really thoughtful and brilliant commentary on many things um, and had that incredible essay earlier this year about guns in America and has done these interviews with President Obama where we just hope that the two of them will have a podcast together for all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's on the, the a, icons list includes like DiCaprio and Adele and uh, Usain Bolt, the sprinter, right. and Alejandro Gonzalez-Ibatu. Robinson. And Marilyn Robinson. Yes. It's, so, it's so good. Um, one of my favorite things about this time list each 
here is that the blurb about each person is written yes. by another person. It's not just like a generic time staffer. And Column Tobin, whose name I know how to say because Amanda did a list, <laughs> uh, like a video of difficult to pronounce authors' names, uh, wrote a lovely blurb about her and her questioning spirit, which I do think is a perfect way mm-hmm. um, to sum her up. So it was very cool to see her there. And so congratulations to her and to Tanahasi Coates and to whoever Elena Ferrante really is. My understanding is in Italy, it might be sort of an open secret who she is. I'm not sure if that's oh, really? right or not. Um, I guess the other one I didn't put on here, but in, in now that I'm looking at it again, we might put on here is just if no other reason that he is a dramatist is Lin-Manuel Miranda mm-hmm. one, oh, excuse me, was also on this list. Um, and depending where you put theater and especially musical theater, like what kind of, you know, is that a literary, per, per, a bookish type person or not? Well, you can decide, but also worth mentioning here. Um, when, pretty yeah, interesting. The overlap with, between bookish people and Hamilton fans seems pretty strong. If, right if now. my Twitter timeline is any <laughs> indication of it, it's a, the Venn diagram is just a circle. <laughs> At this point, I'm just not like I still haven't listened. Have you, I haven't just, listened to it either. I, it's just out of it's partially it's too buzzy for me to mm-hmm. just in, in, encounter on its own right now. So I'm waiting like I'm waiting on reading the Ferrante novels. Um, but also, it's just at this point, it's obstinance. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's part just, of it for me too. You can't make also me. for what it's done to some people. It's like you, you look. It's some people. I feel like have become a host for Hamilton. Like you're not. You're just like. <laughs> You, your your body's existence is to per- perpetuate Hamilton lyrics, kind of like the like the hungry gene, right? Like you are now you are now a vessel for which Hamilton lyrics are um, are passed from from host to host. Uh, anyway, no slight on anyone. Not at all. No. no. Um, okay. Let's. It's see. cool to see a musical, like a Broadway show, be the big thing. I sort of like musical. Boy, I really am letting. I'm opening no, all, no, all the parts I, of the kimono. Um, I love musicals, but like neither of us purports to be cool. Well, I lived in New York since 2000, and I had you know, and it followed theater a little bit before then. I've never seen anything like this. Like Rent was this big, Wicked, mm-hmm. Book of Mormon. Roll them all up together, and you still don't right. have anything even close to. They're this doing. Huge. I mean, now we're way off the track, yeah. but Hamilton is doing half a million. dollars in profit every week. Well, profit. I had this on the list for a couple weeks ago, but we didn't get to where it was sold out on Amazon. Like you couldn't get it. Oh yeah, the, the, book. the, Hamil- yeah, the yes. Hamilton, the Hamilton, book. Hamilton yeah, the Hamilton, which Mariska Hargitay reads the audiobook for for random reasons. Anyway, um, so it's 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 and you couldn't get it on Barnes and Noble, and it's a complete disaster. There was a yeah, if you did not pre-order that one, you're, you're screwed. Sad face for a uh, while. And Miranda was signing some in Boston and New York and somewhere else, maybe DC, and people were lined up like 18 hours ahead of time mm-hmm. to get there. Um, anyway, qu- quite a thing, quite a thing. All right, so that we're moving from the Times list to the what are we world's doing? largest are bookstore. We? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Isn't this weird? This is weird. The uh, world's largest bookstore is set to open soon in Tehran. <laughs> it's going to be... Do you want to know how many square feet, Jeff? I'm looking right at it, and it's a mind-boggling <laughs> number. 484,376 square feet, and it will include a 5,000-car garage. This is crazy. I, I should have Googled to find a building of comparative size because I have no mental reference for like half what half a million square feet looks well, like. Well, you, you've been to my old apartment in New York, speaking of Ditmas Park. That yes. was 1,200 square feet. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm sitting in my house. So and we're I looking at a 350 of my old apartments. <laughs> That's just crazy. And there were 70 units in my building. So basically, mm-hmm. this will be fifty times bigger than my old 
seven-story apartment building in Brooklyn. Bonkers. That is crazy. Uh, ridiculously vast collection of books that will be suitable for people of any status and age category. The books, uh, the shelves will also be filled, it's a, filled, it says, with magical books for children and adolescents. I'm not sure what that means mm-hmm. unless they're uh, talking about metaphorical magic. Uh, and it will have an open auditorium for children that's going to host theater performances that are based on book plots. That's okay. So just the existence of a bookstore this huge is interesting. But given Tehran's history mm-hmm. with um, actual book banning, uh, and literary culture or the suppression of literary culture, and as our Nafisi wrote that wonderful book reading Lolita in Tehran about essentially hosting a secret literature class to read the books that were forbidden um, from being taught. This is especially fascinating given the location. Man. Um, So here's some more context. Um, The largest bookstore in the world right now, before this is opened, is The Strand in New York City. Oh, wow. 14,000 square meters. (laughs) Okay. And this new bookstore will be 45,000 square meters. So four times bigger than The Strand. That's crazy. Uh and you could lose yourself for days Wait, in the, the strand. Wait, the bigger pals here in Portland is bigger than the strand. I'm sorry. In the world? Uh, I don't know. The strand. I'm just saying that if we're the strand, if this is what this uh-huh. article is referring to, the largest bookstore in situated in New York City, covering an area of fourteen thousand yeah. square, that is not bigger. Anyway, there's. It doesn't matter. Okay. The Googler is telling me that the Powell's headquarters in Portland claims to be the uh, largest independent bookstore okay. in the world. But oh, maybe there's one of these Barnes and Nobles that are bigger. There's a bookstore in Toronto. Oh no, there there was one. It operated from 1980 to 2014. Oh yeah, that was chapters. called the world's. It was called the world's biggest bookstore. Yes, oh, I remember that. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> um, and it was 64,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. 64,000 square feet. Yeah. Uh, so still like a, so, about an eighth of the size of this proposed one. That is. This is. Bonker. We're going to have to, we're going to do a Can follow-up. Can we go on a field trip? We're going to do a follow-up. i got to do some homework about this. Um, they don't give us if the name any... in this article. Isn't that weird? That is weird. It's like translated from Turkish or something like this, what I'm looking at right now. Anyway, we'll do if some If any more. of you happen to be in Iran yeah, or near in it, Tehran, please recently, go. But uh, an, almost an order of magnitude bigger than mm-hmm. Powell's, <laughs> which is insane. Wow. Uh, okay, so that's how do you decide which books to stop? You don't have I guess to. You, you actually just buy all the. books. The answer is yes. We'll take one of everything. I, I would like. I would like this whole side of the menu. All right, let's. We do some studies. Yes. Stats. Stat time. Pew, which never met a reading survey, it didn't like. Um, <laughs> released a new one this week, saying that slightly fewer number of people are reading books. Um, down to 72% in 2015 from 76% in 2014. The lowest number we've seen in the last five years. Um, Over the last five years, the numbers starting in 2011 have been 79%, 74%, 76%, and 72%. The number of people reading an e-book for the first time uh, in the year um, dipped for the first time since e-books were a thing, going from 28% of people to 27% percent of people. Also notably, surprising to me, the most surprising one on here is the number of people who read and listened to an audiobook in the last year dipped mm-hmm. from 14% to 12%. Um, so weakness all the way around in 2015. Don't yeah. quite know why. Uh, it's within the statistical, you know, margin of error over 2014, I should say. Yeah. Um, any thoughts here? Well, the audio thing is really interesting because the narrative about audiobooks has been that they're just surging. 
Yeah, but I think if the, you read one, you read a bunch. Right. Yeah, yeah. because the, the number of people using them does not really appear to mm-hmm. have been growing. It was 11% in 2011, 13% in 2012, 14% in 2014, and then back down to 12 in 2015. So I think you're right. Like The people who have jumped in that group from 11 to 13 to 14, and then the ones that are holding on in 12 are consuming a lot of audiobooks, mm-hmm. but it's a sliver of the reading population that's doing a, they're eating most of the pie. Yeah, the biggest um, dip was in the number of people who said they read a print book last year, um, 63% down from 69% the year before. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, a 10% uh, effective drop, which also counters a lot of the narrative we've been hearing about print is roaring back, print is print yeah. is print. Um, and a lot of those, you know, a lot of the sales stuff, I think as well, were mm-hmm. propped up by col- coloring books last year, which were a huge right. hit. And so I don't think anyone who colored in a coloring book is probably counting in their own mind where they respond to a survey like this, that, you know, that coloring book I did, I'm going to count that. Count it as reading. Yeah. Um, other let's see. interesting stuff in here, um, to reiterate that the kids are all right, which we've talked about these findings or similar findings before, young adults, um, those ages 18 to 29, were more likely than their elders mm-hmm. to have read a book in the past 12 months in 2015. Fully 80% of young adults, again, in that 18 to 29 group, um, had read a book in the past year compared with 71% of those ages 30 to 49, 68 of those ages 50 to 64, and 69% of those 65 and older. Um, and I'll, when we talk about these, people are always like, oh, yeah, but school Mm -hmm. they have to read for school and that's true maybe up to like 22 Mm -hmm. for most people if we're talking about people going to college i would like them to break Um, that out to be honest yeah go 18 to 23 and then 23 to 29 Mm -hmm. because the number actually if you're 30 to 49 you read more than people 50 and over you know, 71% yeah. of people 30 to 49 yeah, read a really book interesting. last year. Uh, the average American read 12 books in the past 12 months. Mm. So again, I'm feeling all right about how books are doing. Um, and the numbers were statistically significantly different for men and women. The average American woman read 14 books in 2015, yep. and the average American man read nine. Um, and that is a meaningful, statistically significant difference. So um, the stuff that like kind of the publishing cultural lore about women read more books Mm -hmm. um, and buy more books. And so we market more of the books that women um, are founded on some data here. Yeah. 77% of women said they read, read at least one, at least one book last year, 67% of men. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to look at any other notable, like any other blips that are interesting. 66% of black people, um, 59% of um, Hispanic um, 90% of people who graduated had more than a college degree, 86% of people making over $75,000, um, 76% of people who lived in the suburbs, 70% urban, 66% rural. Um, at the highest, you know, it kind of everything else scales up. Print, mm-hmm. I guess the most interesting print, people who... High school grads, 51% print, 16% ebook. Some college, 69% print, 31% ebook. And then notably, college plus, 81% print, 43% ebook. So, so this is interesting too because we're, we're going to transition to another story um, that the CEO of Kobo yep. is saying that their digital. I guess their digital research, um, their study says that uptake in digital readings be driven by middle-aged people. 
um, meaning those who read more than for 30 minutes a day, are age 45, and uh, most of them are 84, age 45 and above. Um, E-reading, the first technological revolution being driven by 45 and older rather than younger generations. Again, I'm not sure if this revolution is still being driven. I think maybe the revolution done come and gone. I think so. Yeah, it's saying here like the largest group of this 45 and above is the people ages 55 to 64. um, Mm -hmm. And that they're they comprise 30% and are driving it. Um, they had also found that 75% of the most prolific e-readers are women with romance being the best-selling genre. That's no surprise. Um, and it said on average pro- prolific romance readers read for almost 90 minutes mm-hmm. daily, but there, this, yeah, I, this revolution has, if it ever actually was a revolution of e-reading mm-hmm. is not like the front lines are done. And, yeah, I, and I don't see like according There's, to the Pew study, e ebooks basically are reversely correlated with age. Eighteen to twenty nine year olds, thirty four percent of them read one ebook. Thirty to forty nine year olds, essentially the same. Then it mm-hmm. craters to twenty three yeah. percent of fifty to sixty four, and, and fifteen of sixty five plus. And then Scott here says these book buyers. This is from Michael Tamlin, the CEO mm-hmm. of Kobo, as you said. He's saying these book buyers, the ones who have put reading at the center of their lives, are the engine that drives the industry. And so they're trying to understand who the most prolific readers are. So of course they can, you know, sell them more books. Um, I, I don't understand how this goes together. Um, I, I, the Kobo, only thing that makes sense to me is if that percentage of people who are 45 plus that do read books read an extraordinarily large number of them, right? Like mm. they're the power, the power of power users, the power of power buyers. So even though they're a relatively small percentage of the overall market, they're disproportionately um, spenders of dollars. And they do have the dollars to spend, especially that 55 to 64 group where Mm -hmm. you're looking at people also who start retiring um, and having the time to read a lot of books. Again, these are people who read more than 30 minutes a day. So compared to the, you know, I guess if you read 30 minutes a day, you're probably reading about 30 books a year if you read about a page a minute, which is Mm -hmm. sort of the the shorthand people use, which means you're reading double the average American. So I guess you could be out of scale. Yeah, you could be. Influential. Um, I'd like to see, I wish that like Amazon would release this. Yeah. Because it could just be like the people that are driving Kobo's growth are old people. Right. Um, Not that Kobo's doing super great right now. Yeah, exactly. And it would be interesting to see something as big as Amazon Mm -hmm. um, release numbers about usage and demographics of their users and and, and to or see Apple how that or compares Google. i mean any, right. any of yeah, the just Kobo one of the in this bigger... space is like you know kind of an also ran and, right. and i guess the US that's like, at this point right like kind of i think that's ultimately where i'm sitting is that i am having a hard time really trusting this assessment mm-hmm. knowing where kobo stands um on the playing field of digital book selling um, and that there are many other more prominent ones that uh, i think their numbers would have a shot at being more representative it's it's an interesting finding though Mm -hmm. um you know assuming that they did all their math correctly which we don't have any reason to think they didn't it's really interesting to see that and then i just want to know what is it about these kobo readers that maybe makes them different from well it also says here that romance is the best-selling genre accounting for more than twice the number of units Mm -hmm. of the next best-selling category which is just fiction Fiction. so i think it might be there's some we have a spike at the front end of the 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 curve Sure. Of, of romance when readers it, over the age of I, 45. And I would suspect that this is true for other, that that would be true for other mm-hmm. digital booksellers. Romance is 
always the best-selling genre. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about twice the number of units we could break Is out. I'm sure we could dig up those genre numbers. Or always the, or the best-selling genre on eBooks. Oh, you know, I think it's eBooks. But well, I don't know. Can it be the best-selling genre writ large in terms could. of dollar value? I think it could because it's driven the industry for longer than eBooks have been around. Well, but I just remember when Harlequin got sold to HC, their annual revenue was four hundred million dollars, and so they're they were the biggest by mm. far player. So right, if you sort of right, say, right. okay, well, even if they're ten percent of the market, even if romance isn't a four billion dollar business and books did twenty one and a half billion dollars in sale, I I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm missing there. I've got one of those yeah. numbers wrong. I, I don't see how those puzzles fit to get puzzle pieces fit together. My understanding is, aside from the specific numbers, that mystery and romance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and ebooks are sort of a you know the Bermuda Triangle in a good way yeah, <laughs> for right. ebooks. Um, so so anyway, that that's going on there. Um, so those two studies again trying to shake out again. Kobo I think is about nine percent of the of the U.S. Mm-hmm. ebook market. Could also be like who's buying Kobo readers? To be honest, right. uh, who's who's using the Kobo app? Like it's kind of like yeah, it. It seems to me. Amazon is not only larger, but more mainstream, um, as an example, or iTunes might be a different kind of margin. You know, everyone yeah. is competing with Amazon. I think iTunes is a slightly bigger part of the market than Kobo for eBooks. Uh, and I'm sure a slightly different kind of user. Um, a lot of the younger people I know have ditched their e-readers for phone reading or, mm-hmm. you know, on their app or audiobooks yep. or something else. So that could be another, you know, confounding factor like how much is it this i'm not doubting this is true for kobo um you know i'm not thinking they're making up data here but right, i think right, i'm right. doubting how representative of anything outside of kobo necessarily i'm in that boat with you okay um you want to move on to our next let's do sponsor our next sponsor week? you want to tell me about this one yeah we've got a, uh, the walls around us by nova ren suma it is out in paperback now um this is a ghostly story it's a suspense story it's told in two voices so i'm excited already um one of the voices is a living character and one is a dead character um on the outside there's Violet. She is an 18-year-old dancer. She is days away from the life of her dreams, but then something threatens to expose the shocking truth of how she has achieved the things that she's achieved. On the inside, within the walls of a girl's juvenile detention center uh, is Amber, and she is locked up for so long that she can't imagine freedom. And then there's a character named Oriana who ties the two worlds together and holds the key to unlocking all the girl's darkest mysteries. Um, We get to hear Amber's story and Violet's, and through them, we hear Oriana um, first from one angle, then from another, and then gradually you put the whole picture together, um, which is not necessarily the picture that either Amber or Violent want us to see. Um, so supernatural story about guilt and innocence and what happens uh, when one of those is mistaken for another. It was on a bajillion best of lists in but 2015. most importantly, most importantly, ours. Our best of 2015 <laughs> list, the walls around us. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. Uh, it was a winner of the Sybils Award for YA Speculative Fiction, which is a blogger's literary award with a really fascinating process if you ever want to like mm-hmm. Google a thing and go down a deep rabbit hole. Um, it got starred reviews pre-publication in seven big publications. And um, really brilliantly, Algonquin tags this as Orange is the New Black Swan. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. I, 
<laughs> it is pretty good. I have recently uh, learned that ball- like I knew ballet books were a thing in young adult fiction, but apparently like juvenile detention and prison books are a thing in young adult fiction. And so this does both of them. Uh, it has killer ballerinas, ghosts, and a juvenile detention center. I I don't know how I have not read this yet, <laughs> given how many people we both know, mm-hmm. including like a, a huge Almost every one of our contributors, yeah. Of the Book Riot core. Well, we don't read a lot of YA. That's true. Um, but I, I, I'm feeling like this is going to be one of my summer YA picks. Um, our own Kelly Jensen wrote a blurb for it that said, written in luscious and deliciously creepy prose that's not easy to forget. This is a story about guilt and innocence, about secrets and how deep we let people into those places within us. And it's a story about how the past can define our present, even if we try desperately to keep that past under wraps. Uh, and Kelly has not steered me wrong before. Uh, so I'm going to check this one out. We'll have a link in the show notes. And again, it is The Walls Around Us by Nova Rensuma. Um, let's do one more story, which is actually a holdover from last week that yeah, it was it was news, but we didn't get to it. But I don't want to. Yeah, we have to we do have, this one We have this to week. talk about this because uh, I think it's really interesting. And it, it's, it's, it's really important. It's, it's important for, you know, the industry, but also what we care about as well. Um, so the last week, Random House announced that um, oh I lost my I lost my link yeah here we go um, Chris Jackson who is the vice president of Spiegel and Grau uh, and ex- executive editor which is one of the literary imprints of Random House has been named VP and publisher and editor in chief of One World which is a multicultural imprint originally founded in 1991 which had sort of been mothballed up until this point um, so those of you who don't know the publishing jargon being named publisher and editor chief of a basically means you get to call the shots. Um, Mm -hmm. You could decide on buying and marketing and the whole degree around. Um, Jackson is black, and he's been behind a lot of the books you've heard about, most notably possibly this year being Between the World and Me, but also he's acquired books by Edwidge Dundekat, Brian Stevenson, Victor Laval, and Jay-Z. One World had published before Johnny Crockgren, Donald Bogle, Bebby Moore Campbell. I read a great book by her a while ago. Um, and so it's it's really putting him at the forefront of uh, a new imprint. And I'll be very, very interested to see what comes out of this. The, the, I feel the same way. I was really excited to see this happen. The New York Times did a really fantastic profile on him back in February um, about the mm-hmm. black literary movement that he's building. And I'm I think it's just going to be awesome to watch. And we're in this wonderful place right now where publishers are relearning how to think about a multicultural imprint. Um, And he, Chris Jackson, certainly knows what's going on um, and has access to incredible artists and writers. It's I would I just can't wait to see what's going to be on this list. Yeah, we talk a lot about um, we don't care about imprints. I have to say this is one I will care about watching. A yeah, bit. there's like, right, there's like a handful of imprints that you know what they do, and they do it very well. And uh, they do a specific thing. And I will be paying a lot of attention. Uh, another uh, notable book that I've read and can personally recommend The Warmth of Other Sun by Isabel Wilkerson, mm-hmm. the story of the, you know, um, black migration out of the South. Uh, in the years after the Civil War, which is amazing on audiobook too. If you need an audiobook, <laughs> that's really yeah. amazing. The, um, so that's that's the, one to watch: Chris Jackson and uh, One World Books. And it's going to relaunch in fall of 2017. So we'll start hearing about those books. Yeah, probably, probably in the fall. This fall. Yeah, probably um, this fall. And early next year. But I'm getting 
fall and winter catalogs for 2016 already. Yeah. Um, so we'll get to, we won't have to wait much longer. I mean, for, really, for books really to, to honestly, for books to come out, if they're going to come out in the fall of 2017, Random House has the rights now. Mm-hmm. So it might be oh, a yeah, question of some of the things that we're going to be in Spiegel and Grau or other places in different houses or right. whatever. Um, they're in they're the moving. pipeline and we'll, you know, I bet, I bet probably if you got, uh, Mr. Jackson in a room, he could tell you what the first three or four oh, is I'm at this sure point. I'm sure he knows. Yeah. Uh, cool to see an editor who's you know, done some really remarkable things and published some important books and be given an imprint uh, to run with and really... Yeah. Really do something that could be very important. I'm I'm so excited. Very and we'll put excited. the link to that New York Times uh, profile of him in the show notes as well. It's definitely worth a read. I think that's our show. I think it is too. Yeah, as always, you can find uh, show notes to this and other back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. That gives you a link you know, that'll list all of the shows. Click on this one to find the show notes. You can also sample the other shows we've got there. Um, they also are delectable and delightful. Uh, you can email us, feedback podcast at bookriot.com. You can find, follow me on Twitter at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. Follow Rebecca at Rebecca Shinsky. Rebecca, then S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks so much to Before the Fall by Noah Hawley for sponsoring the show and to The Walls Around Us by Nova Rensuma. Those are pretty good picks, got to say. Not mm-hmm. bad picks. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, have a good one. Mm-hmm.